I used to live here right outside of college. We're looking at lots of gray and tan and office buildings on a rainy morning. I'm in Roslyn, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., with my producer, Josh. We're right near all the parking garages where all these documents were traded during Watergate. <laughs> a short walk away from here is the Watergate Hotel, where the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee was broken into in 1972. This era was packed with monumental moments in history. Vietnam, back-to-back -back Apollo space missions, and yes, of course, Watergate. But that's not why we're here. And we're standing in front of the office building at 1400 Wilson Boulevard. And this is something that I had not read before, but there's this sign that says at the top of it, ARPANET. Remember last episode when Len Kleinrock said there should be a big sign at LAX saying, welcome to LA, birthplace of the internet? Well, there is a sign like that in Roslyn, sort of. Should I read it? Yeah. It says ARPANET, the ARPANET, a project of the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Department of Defense, developed the technology that became the foundation for the internet at this site from 1970 to 1975. Originally intended to support military needs, ARPANET technology was soon applied to civilian uses, allowing information to be rapidly and widely available. The internet and services such as email, e-commerce, and the World Wide Web, they have that all as one word, <laughs> <laughs> continues to grow as the underlying technologies evolve. The innovations inspired by the ARPANET have provided great benefits for society. And it says at the bottom in smaller letters, this was erected in 2008 by Arlington County, Virginia. It really does look like a placard, like here, here fought the battle of yes. Arpanet in, in 1972. We are at the site of ARPA's old headquarters. In the midst of all this early 1970s history, our computer freaks were focused on ARPA's fledgling technology. They weren't sending men to the moon or bringing down presidents. But after years of work, they were ready to show the world what they'd been building. So they were getting ready for a ball. Well, technically it was a conference, the International Conference on Computer Communication, or ICCC for short. It would go down in history as the coming out ball for the ARPANET. This was like the Continental Congress with 1970s wide ties and sideburns. And we're here just outside of D.C. to talk to its chief architect, a man named Bob Kahn. He held this coming out ball that most of the founding fathers of the ARPANET still talk about to this day as the moment that the broader world would see the potential of computer networking. Something great was coming, and the way we communicate with each other would never be the same. This is Computer Freaks from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Hani Dare Bryan. Chapter 3 Let's Have a Ball. 
In October 1972, the basement of the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. was crammed with the whole of the computer world. On display were the latest and greatest innovations in technology. Well, we had almost everybody who was anybody in computer networking in that ballroom for at least 12 or maybe more hours per day. They were literally locked down in Washington for a whole week. It was an amazingly energizing event. That's Bob Kahn, the man who put this whole conference together. If there is one person who deserves the most credit for creating the internet, it may be Bob Kahn. My dad, who worked with Khan, said he was one of the people I absolutely had to track down. On the day we met him in his office, Khan, who is now in his 80s, looks very much like his early photos. Glasses frame these dark, sparkling eyes. He looks like he's always thinking. He's nerdy, but approachable, kind of like my dad. He had been fitted for a cane that morning and was warned by his doctor to be careful of falls. But he still showed up to answer my questions. Back in 1972, Kahn was finishing up his last major task for Bolt, Berenick, and Newman before he moved over to ARPA, where he eventually would run the office that oversaw the entire ARPANET. That task was a big one, planning this conference, this ball, to show what exactly he had been working on for the past three years, along with a bunch of young graduate students. You can actually hear the excitement in every single interview. I mean, there's a din in the background. There's like a roar in the background almost. Uh, it was exciting. Like Facebook must have been on day one. I mean, these were all kids probably in their 20s or 30s at most. And none of them had suits and ties on. I mean, the only ones <laughs> that did probably were the visiting executives from some of the carriers <laughs> wondering what the heck is going on here. But it, it was just an exciting time for young kids to show what they were doing. What they were all excited about was the prospect of computers being able to talk to each other. For the first time, anyone could come in, sit in front of a computer, and chat with someone else on a computer in the same room or across the country. Word of this network had been getting out since that fateful night three years before at UCLA. But it still wasn't a widespread concept. And most people had not yet tried it, and many people were skeptical. I knew it could work before we ever built it. But when we built it, my gosh, it does work. Who'd have thunk it? They knew it would work. It was working at universities and military bases, dozens of sites by this point. But could they convince others of its value and that this tool for information sharing could be more efficient and reliable than anything that had come before? How can you rely on a technology where everything isn't pinned down, where you don't know for sure how everything is going to get delivered? And the answer was, well, let's give it a try. I mean, you don't know when you use the transportation system that you want to go from point A to point B, someplace else around the world, that you're going to get there, right? Because maybe the cab won't get you to the airport, Maybe the airport will get closed. Maybe the plane won't take off. Maybe the plane won't get to the destination. Maybe you won't get local transportation from the destination. There's no guarantee end-to-end. There's no guarantee in the network technology either, but we thought it could work. There are no guarantees. 
But this conference was the first step in creating some assurances. Khan was the boss, but he couldn't do all of this alone. And what was your role at that conference? I was just another one of the graduate students who was trying to help get all the applications up and running and demonstrated. That's Vint Cerf. Remember from the beginning of this series when my dad was telling me about a colleague he read about in the Wall Street Journal? That was Vint. He was one of the many grad students working with Khan to set up hardware, demonstrate their work, and make sure everything ran smoothly. The people who did the original ARPANET project were mostly young geeks because (laughs) they were graduate students at a dozen different universities scattered around the United States and eventually uh, in Europe as well, in Norway and, and the UK and later on in Germany and Italy. Uh, so it was a lot of young geeks and a few old farts. Vint is impossible not to mention in the same breath as Bob Kahn if you ever want to talk about internet history. They even live just a few miles from each other and seem to have been talking nonstop for the past 50 years. They both know how to play to each other's strengths. Vint is really very good at taking ideas and working to kind of reduce them to practical reality. I had broader perspective, you know, the global national research scene in in IT, things like that. And so the way we balance things is I would tend to take a larger, more global view of things, and he would take a a more practical day-to-day, what do we need to get done today, tomorrow? But more important than almost anything else, I think, was he had a social style that was very amenable to the community at large. So he played a kind of an ombudsman's role during that whole period where he'd work with people in the community. At first glance, Surf is a very different character in the ARPANET world, starting with how he dresses. When Khan said most people didn't wear suits to the ball, Surf was an exception. A three-piece suit has become sort of Surf's signature look. He's wearing one in just about every photo you'll see of him. He's wearing one as I'm interviewing him at his home. Being a sharp dresser is something he takes pride in. His wife actually got him to start wearing three-piece suits when Surf moved to D.C. to work for ARPA. She figured it would be a good look when talking to senators and congressmen. It's a sign of respect to dress well. And I don't mind that because I kind of like the idea of looking a little different than everybody else anyway. So I'm wearing my three-piece suits, and then I get asked to go testify before some committee I'm in the Congress, and I don't remember anymore which one. But I was wearing my seersucker three-piece suit. So I do my testimony, and I come back to work, don't hear a thing. A few weeks later, I get a call from the director of ARPA, who's two levels above my boss. He says he wants to talk to me about my testimony. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've screwed up. It's the end of my government career. You know, that's it. I'm dead. So I go into his office, and he's got this paper. And he says, well, I have a letter here from the chairman of the committee. Uh, he says, thanks very much for Dr. Sir's testimony. By the way, he's the best-dressed guy from ARPA we've ever seen. And I took that as positive feedback, and I've been wearing three-piece suits ever since. So this is now trademark. Khan with his big-picture thinking and the practical surf with his signature suits would together make one of the single biggest contributions to internet technology in the years that followed the coming out ball. But we will get into that story next episode. In 1972, they were just geeks in that hotel basement talking about building the future. 
They actually labeled it the first International Conference on Computer Communications, expecting that there would be a second and a third and a fourth. <laughs> this was the first opportunity to demonstrate packet switching to the general public. Of course, the general public doesn't show up at things called ICCC. It's geeks that show up. But we wanted to show the geeks what packet switching could do. Remember packet switching? The code that allowed computers at UCLA to log into that computer at SRI? The geeks were sold on it, but it was a harder task to get the phone company executives to see its merits. And of course, they were skeptics because, after all, the telephone system, which was invented way back in 1876, used circuit switching, and it worked very well, and it was a global system, and, you know, what else do you need? The computer freaks needed to convince the phone companies that packet switching was better for them than circuit switching. But what incentive did the telephone companies have? They basically had a global monopoly. The only way to get them on their side was to show that this technology was the future, something so important that they couldn't afford to ignore. And I remember Bob Metcalf, the inventor of Ethernet, was uh, demonstrating this uh, applications running on the ARPANET at the IEEC in 72, and AT&T showed up. Can you tell me a bit more about your meeting with the AT&T executives and what happened at the October 72 conference? Sure. <laughs> I had just transitioned from MIT to Xerox, moved to Palo Alto. And the ARPANET guys said, we're going to have this conference. And a group of executives showed up at the event uh, from AT&T. <laughs> and the question arose is, who was going to give them the tour? And very quickly, the answer was me, because I had written the book. Metcalf, the creator of the Ethernet, who you heard from in the last episode, is referring to a booklet he wrote for the conference. It's called Scenarios. It described 19 ways you might want to use something like the ARPANET. We gave him each a copy of the book, as I recall, and I started going around. So imagine the exposition room of the Hilton one of those big, huge open spaces. And in the middle of it on a pedestal, like the monolith <laughs> in uh, 2001, was, uh, I think it was a tip, a terminal. There was imps and there were tips. And imps you connected computers to and tips you connected dumb terminals to. It was still dumb terminal world. And I began taking them around. I went to one particular terminal. They were standing behind me and I would type stuff in and show, okay, here's the paranoid schizophrenic emulator at MIT, which was a big hit. <laughs> there I am, I'm wearing a uh, three-piece suit. So maybe Surf wasn't the only geek in a suit. I don't know if I copied him or what. No, <laughs> I, I didn't copy him. I, I used to wear wingtips in a three-piece suit because I was a student at the Sloan School of Management. But I had a huge Viking beard, and which now that signaled in much the same way that my beard signaled things at the military bases, they also signaled things at AT&T, I'm sure. But behind me were, roughly speaking, 10 AT&T executives all wearing three-piece suits like me, and I was taking them on a tour, and right in the middle of the demo, you know, I'm typing... Uh, I'm looking back and the tip crashed. 
to the whole room, which was full of people typing away. No response. No rendezvous. So I turn around to see what I could do, and these 10 executives were laughing. They were laughing in front of a grad student with a beard who had just spent years, not that many, two or three years, building this thing or helping build it, and they were laughing that it broke. So I took that very personally, and in that moment, hated AT&T, and to this day, I hate AT&T. Even though I'm a customer of AT&T. <laughs> this was the geek's moment to secure trust from the phone companies, and it did not go as planned. But it is debatable whether AT&T could have been convinced of packet switching in that moment anyway. So did you say to anything to them when they laughed at you, or did you just remain silent? It was only down for a few seconds. And uh, it came back up again, and, but we had to re-log in and reconnect because when you cycle something, all the connections break, so we had to reestablish. So it took a few minutes, and, and then it never broke again. It was just that one time. Vint will tell you his version of that story, but my version involves these 10 AT&T executives making fun of the fact that something that I helped build <laughs> had broken. And they were delighted that it broke because it reconfirmed for them that they, they were uh, not going to be challenged. But of course, they eventually were challenged and uh, broken apart and uh, packet switching dominated. Everything's packet switching now. Even though AT&T wasn't impressed on that day, Word of the ARPANET spread in ways it had not before. Khan recalls that more than 1,000 people turned out for the event. Well, I, I think it was a watershed event. I recall many people who didn't think it was real suddenly having to deal with the fact that it was real. It was a reality. It had been publicly demonstrated, and it worked. And there were articles written during that whole period that said, Con was a, had a radical notion, couldn't possibly work, but it did. The world, at least the geeks of the world, were starting to be convinced that packet switching was indeed the future of communications. After the 1972 ball, universities across the country and across the world installed nodes on their campuses. Hundreds, even thousands of men started using the ARPANET. And yes, I did say men. You may have noticed these early days of the internet were dominated by men, but it wasn't all founding fathers. After the break, I'm heading to Menlo Park, California to introduce you to a founding mother of the internet. Computer Freaks is brought to you by Inc. Business Media. Inc. is here to support the American entrepreneur through its journalism, Recognition programs like the Inc. 5000, live events like Inc. Founders House, and small peer-to-peer -peer networking. We aim to inform, educate, and elevate the profile of our community, the risk-takers, the innovators, and the ultra-driven go-getters who create our future. For more essential journalism like Computer Freaks, go to Inc.com and subscribe to Inc. Unlimited to experience the full offering of writing, video, and podcasts. Is that? Are those her? Oh, that's right. That's, oh, wow. That's um, Jake Feinler's house. So we're pulling up in front of Jake Feinler's house. 
and it is a two-story blue house with siding and um, two big trees in the front and then oh a third tree with lemons just kind of dripping from it and we're surrounded by these sweet bungalows um, and we're getting ready to go inside. Today, we are meeting Jake Feinler, founding mother of the internet. She is one of the people my father worked with most closely on the ARPANET project. She is now 92 years old. She has been battling cancer and some other ailments, but you would never know it. She greets us at the door wearing a bright pink blazer and a matching pink silk scarf. Her reddish brown hair hangs neatly over her ears in a pixie cut. There is something both girlish and hawkish about her. She walks with a shiny, foldable brown and golden cane that she says she only uses when she goes out. She told us she could talk to us over lunch. So we drove her to a nearby Chinese food restaurant she chose. What's that one? This one's uh, noodles and... Pencil noodles. Yes. Yeah, question. question. Combination pencil noodles. This is lemon chicken. Oh, thank you. Enjoy. This looks like a that good one. Like I might try some of yours, Jake. Jake started working at Stanford Research Institute in 1960, helping scholars out with technical research. After 12 years on this job, she was longing to do something else, and so she turned to a colleague named Doug Engelbart. You may know him as the inventor of the computer mouse. Anyway, so one time I said, I'm bored down here, why don't you hire me? And he said... <laughs> He said, well, right now I don't have a job. And I said, oh, okay, well, it was, it was a long shot. <laughs> anyway, so about six months later, he came down. He says, I have a job now. And I said, what is it? And he said, we need a resource handbook. And I said, what's a resource handbook? And he said, I don't really know, but we need one in six weeks. <laughs> And what was it for? <laughs> well, it was everything that everybody was doing on the Internet at the time. This was a resource handbook to be used at that October 1972 ball. Jake did not attend, but this was the first step in solidifying her role in the history of the ARPANET. Like I said, after the ball, use of the ARPANET skyrocketed. In a chart I found from my father's old files, ARPANET traffic growth spiked from zero to nearly 5 million packets used per day right after the conference. With all of these people getting on the ARPANET, Jake was tasked to essentially create the ARPANET directory. It was like a phone book for the ARPANET. It had your name, your address, your email address, and where you were located, and who your officers and people were at your group and everything, what your computer was. Many people I have talked to for this podcast fondly remember this directory. A June 1974 version I found is a 61-page booklet with directions on how to use the ARPANET and its users, whose names are listed alphabetically by last name. The list runs like a Continental Congress for the ARPANET. Licklider, Khan, Surf, Kleinrock, everyone you've heard from so far on this podcast, they're all in there with their ARPANET identity code listed next to their name. But Jake took a Jeffersonian approach. She decided from the start that all ARPANET users would be treated as equals. So when I published the ARPANET directory, I refused to put in titles 
Yes. First of all, it would have been a nightmare to keep up with the military titles because they change all the time. But I figured, you know, we had kid hackers, we had Nobel Prize winners, we had a lot of military. They were mostly just coming on because it was still researchy. Now that there's a phone book, everything changed. Like Jake said, kid hackers could talk to Nobel Prize winners and everyone in between. Jake has told me about how she used to answer calls from ARPANET users from dusk until dawn, how people would line up for hours to get onto the ARPANET through terminals. She told me how ARPANET users started forming communities on the ARPANET. People started talking about their favorite science fiction writers and Palo Alto restaurants on the ARPANET. People started meeting and falling in love on the ARPANET. This was no longer just a military tool or a research tool. It was a social tool. But this is the moment when problems also started happening. Problems everyone listening to this episode lives with all day, every day. One of those things is cyberbullying, or what Jake calls flaming. We had one little kid well, he wasn't, he was, he was young, and he kept flaming. He just could not separate an idea from the person. And so he'd send, and he, he was good at what his ideas, and he'd say, you know, you're a so-and-so son of a gun, you know, and you, with your idea of X, Y, and Z. And so the head of the groups kept telling him, stop flaming, or we're going to throw you off the list. Okay, it's come to this. That was the header of his email. These were all done on email. Yeah, yeah. He said, your mother wears combat boots. <laughs> now, that was a terrible saying from World War II, but the kid was so young, he didn't know what it meant. And he so, comes over to me and says, can you tell me what this means? <laughs> oh, God. So what did you tell him? Well, I don't know what I told him, but I said, it means you should stop flaming. <laughs> This was an early sign that things could get ugly on the ARPANET. At this point, conversations on the ARPANET were self-policed. They didn't have any rules of conduct to offer any real consequences for people who behaved badly. Many people I spoke to said that the research community felt at the time they carried enough weight to shame people into behaving properly. In my reporting, many founding fathers have compared it to how professors behave at an academic conference. But as more and more people got onto the network, treating the ARPANET like a self-policed academic conference could only work for so long. And the combat boots joke speaks to a broader problem. There were pretty much only white men on the ARPANET. And there was a lot of sexism that was taking place among the people creating this technology. The reason myself and my producer flew to California and knocked on Jake's door is that she is one of the very few women who was working on this project at the time. You can't separate this technology from the time it was being created and who created it. Feinler herself talked about often being mistaken as a secretary. One of the few other women I spoke to who was also part of this world during that time described herself as feeling like the family dog, part of the ARPANET community, but not the same. This was an ARPANET of white men with its own jokes and rules. Kind of like that moment when elementary school boys have been released onto an after-school playground 
Their teachers have stepped away and their parents have not yet expected them home. The energy is exhilarating and raucous, but it's always on the cusp of getting out of hand. This is the moment on this reporting journey that has offered me so much clarity about why we have the internet we have today and the problems we have today. Just look at the environment and culture that it started in. It was exciting and innovative for a very select few. And Jake was at the center of the moment, mothering many of these miscreants. Is it accurate to call you a founding mother of the internet? Well, I was there and I worked on the first computer. I've learned in my many conversations with Jake, she never oversells her accomplishments. But I know her contributions meant a lot to my dad. And in his socially awkward, computer nerd kind of way, he tried to thank her for her work. It was just before my dad retired, and they were having their final meetings about the ARPANET. He said, do you mind going to Alexandria for lunch? And I said, no. And uh, he picked a restaurant, because I didn't know Washington that way. And uh, I knew it was, you know, that he was leaving, so that we were going to have a better than some kind of a box lunch. (laughs) Anyway, so at the end of it, he said, do you mind if I stop in a toy store on the way back? I think he was driving, I'm not sure. And I said, no, that's fine. And I said, I like toy stores, which I do. I collect pin cushions, if you can believe that. And that's a joke. (laughs) But uh, anyway, he said, I want to get a glass container for my daughter's doll. And so he's just, you know, he's up at the counter paying for this and whatnot. And he turns around and he hands me this little sack. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's a pen cushion. <laughs> <laughs> and he was sort of embarrassed because, you know, military isn't supposed to do anything with their contractors. Like, I mean, even though it probably costs four bucks or something, you know. <laughs> And I opened up, it was really pretty, and I I haven't been able to find it. If if I find it, I'll let you know, but it's a little square cushion, green velvet with a little white cat sitting on it, and the cushion is the pin cushion part. And I was just really touched that he even noticed, people kid me all the time about this pin cushion collection. Jake's work left a lasting impact on my dad. Of all the internet founders we've talked to and that he met, She's one of the four names that sticks in his mind. I wonder if that, in part, was because she saw some of the dangers that came from open access to the ARPANET, the dangers my dad feared. She saw firsthand the social aspects that could connect people and also lead to ugly flaming battles like the ones she told me about. The flaws of the internet today were evident to some even in its early days. (laughs) Well... If you look at the internet today, you recognize that it has a few problems, right? That's Vint Cerf again. I asked him about the legacy of what the ARPANET became, the internet. We have you know, misinformation, disinformation, social media, and all these other problems. On the other hand, man, oh man, there's a lot of good stuff has happened in this environment. I mean, we've created billions of dollars of value uh, in this system. I don't know how many jobs, millions of jobs on a global scale. So, you know, I feel pretty good about that part. There is this gap between what was intended and what became reality. 
The whole reason I started reporting the story was my dad's belief that the ARPANET was for military purposes only. The U.S. government invested millions and millions into this project to solve defense communication issues after World War II. It's what people like Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn were paid to work on. Command and control. We've been talking a lot about founding fathers. How often in this country do we hear arguments for or against issues based on what the founding fathers intended? But we can't go and talk to John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. That's not the case with the internet. If we're going to understand the internet today, we have to understand what the founders intended. What they've said is that the social fallout was incidental. It was not on the forefront of their minds. I asked Bob Kahn about the intentions of his work. He has many opinions about people guessing what he was thinking. When people get up and say, look, this is what was intended, and they're talking about what was in my mind, or what was in Vince's mind, I say, you know, why don't you ask us? Because you're talking about what we were thinking. If the founding fathers were around him, you go ask them, what was your intent? You know, or at least what do you, you as one of the founding fathers, think was the intent? Once we're gone, then, then who knows? So what was your intent when you, what was your, your purest intent of, of starting these original communication networks? For me, it was a capability I thought would be really useful for defense. Remember, the purpose of DARPA was to maintain a technological vigil for the country. They got surprised with Sputnik when everybody that I've talked to says back in 1957 when Sputnik was launched, the U.S. could have done that, except it was nobody's responsibility. Nobody expected the Soviets to do it. Why didn't we? Nobody had the charter. So DARPA was set up by Eisenhower with a specific responsibility to not let that happen again. If the ARPANET had only stayed with the military and military were the only people using it, then that would just be a military problem, not a societal problem. Instead, it's a problem that we are all dealing with today. But as we all know, the ARPANET, and ultimately the internet, was going to become so much more. On next week's episode, we will look at how we went from networking to internetworking and how much our founding fathers should credit the French. Computer Freaks is a production of Inc., created and hosted by myself, Christine Hani Dare Bryan. Our executive producer and editor is Josh Christensen. Associate producer is Sophie Codner. Music by James Jackman. Sound design and mixing by Nicholas Torres. Editorial oversight by Scott Emelianuk and Stephanie Mehta. Computer Freaks is dedicated to my dad, Major Joseph Hani.